Welcome to Budget Watchdog, All Federal, the podcast dedicated to making sense of the budget, spending, and tax issues facing the nation. Cut through the partisan rhetoric and talking points for the facts about what's being talked about, bandied about, and pushed to Washington. Brought to you by Taxpayers for Common Sense. And now, the host of Budget Watchdog AF, TCS President Steve Ellis. Welcome to all American taxpayers seeking common sense. You've made it to the right place. For over 25 years, TCS, that's Taxpayers for Common Sense, has served as an independent, nonpartisan budget watchdog based in Washington, D.C. We believe in fiscal policy for America that is based on facts. We believe in transparency and accountability because no matter where you are on the political spectrum, no one wants to see their tax dollars wasted. It's May 26th, and what's old is new again in Congress when it comes to earmarks. For the first time in a decade, lawmakers again have the power to request federal dollars to specific projects in their home states and districts. Some call it bringing home the bacon. So what's new with earmarks this time around? Well, for one, Congress has taken a page out of the Taxpayers for Common Sense playbook. They have instituted more transparency with the implementation of publicly accessible databases that catalog exactly what each member is seeking. And as we've proven with our own databases in the past, it is a crucial tool allowing the scrutiny that identifies trends and potential abuses. But that's not all that's different when earmarks this time around. Joining us to help get you up to speed is TCS Senior Policy Analyst, Josh Sewell. Thanks for jumping in here, Josh. Anything for you, Steve. That's what I like to hear. All right, Josh, tell everybody what other guardrails have been erected to keep this new earmark era on the straight and narrow. Well, first off, they aren't earmarks. They are community project funding requests, at least in the House. So let's keep that straight. Now, the Senate website still refers to them as congressionally directed spending because earmarks, that's a bad brand. Got it. Yeah, no, I mean, earmarks became a dirty word. And so now they start trying to replace one simple term that everybody can understand with convoluted multi-word descriptions. Good luck with that. Yeah. Well, whatever you call them, what we have now is a new process where the House and Senate are trying to avoid scandals or the appearance that lawmakers are using tax dollars for anything other than needed community projects. So the chairpersons, uh, the chair of the House and the Senate Appropriations Committees, so Connecticut Representative Rosa DeLauro and Vermont Senator Patrick Leahy, have a new process. And in that, there's actually more transparency and a limited universe of project requests you can make. So if you go to the House website or the House Appropriations website, They have a transparency tab, and that's actually where you can go and find the new rules and some of the disclosures. Senate also has this. Being the Senate, it takes two steps instead of just one, but you can get there too if you go to under about the committee. So for the new earmark process, first of all, it is a limited universe. The Democrats have capped the earmarked funds at 1% of discretionary budget. They've limited the accounts eligible for earmarks, and each member has a max of 10 requests that they can make across all the appropriations bills. Now, with these requests, they've also made them more transparent. So members have to take some ownership of the requests. So they have to post the request on their own website. The members must certify that neither they nor their family members have a financial interest in the project. And also, they can't go to for-profit entities. 
That is a big difference because certainly where we saw the uh, lion's share of the funding for earmarks in the past was going to the defense sector. And almost all of those, not all, but a lot of them were going to for-profit entities. And so that's really cutting out a lot of defense contractors and some lobbyists. Absolutely. And there's also one other really important transparency change here is that the Government Accountability Office is now tasked with actually auditing a sample of the earmarks every year and submitting a report to Congress, basically to make sure that the rules are being followed and to see what's there. And podcast listeners, uh, just something to keep in mind, too, is that back when they were doing earmarks before, even with some of the transparency measures, they were literally just charts in the back of the appropriations documents that we optically scanned to then transfer into Excel documents, had to clean up all the data to figure out who was getting what in these 9,000 earmarks. So now they've actually taken the step of putting it in an Excel document that's available to everyone. So, I mean, that is a significant step forward, but it's still thousands of earmarks that you have to go through. So speaking of thousands of earmarks, the earmark race is officially underway. What, if anything, do we know exactly how leaders are sifting through the thousands of earmark requests to determine which projects get funded? We don't know much. It's still an opaque process. Again, we do support the transparency. It is helpful to see the universe of requests, but there's not a lot of pulling back the curtain to see exactly what the leadership or the committee leaders are deciding. Now, there are member days. So the committees are holding what are known as member days, which allows members of Congress to come down and request different things. It's not only about earmarks. Um, They can come down and talk about anything for that appropriate committee. So the House Agricultural Probes Subcommittee has held a member day that I watched. And there are a number of folks who came down and asked for different things and made their priorities known. And a couple of the members did actually talk about their earmark requests. So a a cattle call, is that what you're saying here? A cattle call of lawmakers parading through uh, the Appropriations Committee, at least virtually? I would never call a member of Congress a cow. (laughs) All right. Point taken, Josh. Point taken. Um, The honorable cow. Um, So, all right. What responsibility falls on groups like us? What responsibility falls on taxpayers for common sense of making sure that this uh, process, this earmark renaissance, if you would, um, doesn't spin out of control? Well, we have to watch it and we have to dig. Um, We need to do what we used to do in a better way in many ways. And it's not just taxpayers for common sense. It's anybody who's interested in making government work a little better. So first thing is just to watchdog this process. We need to look through the requests. They are available. They're somewhat enjoyable to read at times. You can learn about new institutions you didn't know about. Um, Look into communities you may have never been to. Um, uh, And it actually is very informative. Uh, And so it's incumbent upon us to ensure that the rules are being followed. So are those requests on each member's website? Um, Are they easy or difficult to find? Because there's one thing to have transparency and there's another thing to have transparency. Like you can say it's on your site, but if you can't find it, it ain't transparency. Uh, And then once the bills are out, that's where the rubber meets the road. And that's where we can do some real evaluation and say, is merit or muscle the determinant of these? And who gets all 10 of their requests and who gets none? You can get this kind of analysis once you see what's there. It's going to take a lot of watchdogging. One thing I've thought about is is that if you're limiting them to 10 requests, then just by the sheer numbers, there's 4,350 possible requests. We know many lawmakers are not requesting, um, particularly among the Republicans. But 
when you look at 1% of discretionary spending, that's about what it was back in 2010, fiscal year 2010, the last time we had it. But then we had more than 9,000 earmarks. So what we're possibly going to see is a lot more cash per earmark than we used to see. And then, as you said, you can limit everybody to 10 earmarks, but to paraphrase Animal Farm, you know, all lawmakers are equal, but some are more equal than others. And so are some of these, you know, the top dogs going to be able to get more funding for their individual earmarks than others. And absolutely, Josh, you're right. The rubber's going to meet the road when we actually see what gets allocated right now. You can ask for whatever you want. Doesn't mean you're going to get it. And so it's going to be incumbent to see what happens there. So we've been talking really about the Appropriations Committee and their process but they're not the only earmark game in town. What are some of the other committees that are involved in this earmark process and have earmarks? Well, the big one going on right now is the surface transportation bill, uh, which is the highway bill and mass transit bill primarily. That's in-house transportation and infrastructure. That committee has already released their bill and they have an earmark process. And it's important to remember that the transportation bill is actually where the bridge to nowhere came out. So the bridge to nowhere was a 2005 earmark that was very famous. And Steve can give you hours and hours of commentary on this because he was actually at TCS uh, when this occurred. I was not. But it's pretty much the earmark that put earmarks on the map. Literally, literally, it's a bridge to nowhere. So now the transportation bill earmark process is completely separate from the appropriations process. And that's important to remember is that many of these authorizing bills can have earmarks and in the past did, but they are separated from the appropriations process. And so they will have separate processes for how to make those requests. Now, what we have seen so far is that in the House Transportation Bill, about 75% of House members made a request. And these project requests total $14.8 billion. Now, how those almost 2,500 separate requests pan out, well, again, we'll have to see what Chairman DeFazio and Ranking Member Graves figure out, but there's also the whole Senate to deal with. And here's where uh, Budget Watchdog AF listeners, uh, my friends, I have to inform you. One of the things to keep in mind is that taxpayers for common sense is who dubbed the bridge to nowhere, the bridge to nowhere. Before we got on the scene, it was the Gravina Island Access Project, decidedly less sexy name. So Josh, where do we think this will end? I mean, what are the Senate Republicans doing? Their conference is actually on the record for banning earmarks entirely. So they are on the record, and that's a position they reaffirmed last month, but not all members are going to follow it. A number of Republican senators have come out and said, we're going to do earmark requests. We don't care what the conference says, you know, including our, our good friend Roy Blunt of Missouri. And they have explicitly said that they are going to participate. And it's mainly appropriators and people like Mr. Blunt who are retiring, uh, but others are also undecided. I think what it comes down to is this is going to be an issue for a long time. Since the earmark moratorium started, You've had especially appropriators, but other members wanting to bring them back, trying to come up with a new process. And so that's how we got to where we are today. Now, people are going to dig into this process. People are going to dig into earmarks. Earmarks are a goldmine for people who want to look for corruption or just something that looks funny or sounds weird. And so we're going to look at it. The press is already digging into it. And so there's going to be a lot of oversight, a lot more oversight from outside of Congress. And hopefully with this new process, more oversight, more restraint, apparently, uh, and hopefully better projects come out of this process. But I also think it's really important to remember that most spending, the drivers of the deficit, the tax code are not directly affected by this process or even the older marketing process. So there's a lot in that 99% of the budget that ain't being touched. 
So that's still going to be there and it's going to be contentious. Yeah, it reminds me of uh, one of the comments from former Appropriations Committee Chairman David Obie when he was talking about earmarks on the floor. He said what he hated about earmarks was that they turn lawmakers into ATM machines for their districts and that basically there's no oversight or accountability for the rest of the legislation. They all just pay attention to what they got or didn't get in their package. And so we do know that there has to be oversight and accountability and they can't just get distracted by this shiny object or they shouldn't get distracted by this shiny object. And certainly one of the things that we've called for 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 years and thankfully Congress did institute is this government accountability office, the watchdog arm of Congress actually doing oversight or you know looking at some of these earmarks. So every lawmaker knows that theirs could be the one that gets picked by the GAO to look into. But we're going to have to see this is going to play out over the next couple of years. And I'm sure that everybody's going to be minding their P's and Q's initially. And then we just have to see whether they start slipping or not. But you watch all federal listeners, you got a bonus coverage today. You know, we're going to shift gears here a little bit. And segment two, will the real Biden budget for fiscal year 22 please step forward? As we find ourselves here on the cusp of the Memorial Day weekend, the Biden administration is expected to finally share its full proposed federal budget for fiscal year 2022. If you think this is a little late in the season to be unveiling the president's full budget request, you'd be right. Joining us now to help get beyond the skinny budget that we've already talked about before in a previous podcast is TCS senior policy analyst, Wendy Jordan. Welcome back to the podcast, Wendy. Thank you, Steve. It's good to be back. And you know me, I, I live to talk about the president's budget request and the congressional appropriations process. So happy to be here. Great. And we'll keep Josh along for the ride as well. He's got some thoughts and opinions. So by the skin of their teeth, the administration will be able to say they dropped their full budget request in May, but not by much. Where does this put Congress in the budget process? Well, it puts them late to the party. Let me just tell you, the the typical sweet spot for appropriations hearings is March. Typically, the budget comes out sometime in February. The uh, administration witnesses start coming up to the appropriations committees and subcommittees in March and testifying. And that is the natural lead in to the markup process and the orderly process that leads to all 12 appropriations bills being passed prior to October 1st, the beginning of the fiscal year. And Steve, I think you know the answer to this. When's the last time that happened? 1997. Right. As you mentioned earlier, the the Biden administration did present a so-called discretionary budget request. Remember, Budget Watchdog AF listeners, that mandatory spending is a huge, huge portion of the federal budget. So they gave us the outline of the discretionary budget request last month. And if you want to refresh yourselves on that, we can go to taxpayer.net and read what we wrote about that at the time. There wasn't much meat on the skinny budget bones, but it did give us a peek into what's coming up. And I'm going to talk about the Pentagon request in particular, because that's what I happen to work on. It told us that the discretionary top line for the Pentagon would be $715 billion. Looking back at the Trump administration's projections for mandatory spending at the Pentagon in FY22, they projected $10.6 billion. So I'm going to consult my crystal ball and say that it looks like the Pentagon top line will be $725.6 billion, give or take. 
Now, remember, the Pentagon top line is not the same as national security spending, which includes some money from the State Department, some money from the Department of Energy. So I'm just talking about Pentagon top line. My crystal ball tells me it'll be in the neighborhood of $725 billion. The big deal uh, is that in the discretionary budget request statement from OMB, the Office of Management and Budget, they said that the administration would not be requesting any money in OCO, the Overseas Contingency Operations so-called off-budget account, which still added to the deficit, but so supposedly was off-budget, which at its height in FY08 was, I think, 175 to 180 billion additional dollars for the Pentagon. And recently it's been in the 65 to 70 billion range. So I feel like I should get one of those bells and run from street to street like a town crier, you know, yelling, Oko is dead, Oko is dead. But then I am reminded of a scene in Monty Python and the Holy Grail where the guy said, I'm not dead yet. And my deepest heart of hearts, I fear that Congress is going to try to do something to reinstitute OCO. I hope I'm wrong, but it it was a convenient budgetary valve, a safety valve that the Pentagon had and, and really, except for a little tiny bit in State Department, nobody else had. But fingers crossed that common sense, as in taxpayers of common sense, will prevail and OCO will actually be dead. Cheers that you were hearing, listeners, was us cheering about the OCO being gone. And thanks for the, the details on the Pentagon budget proposal. What are some of the ideas? Why, why do we think that this is actually being delayed this much? I mean, we know that there are, obviously, there's been a lot going on. It's kind of an understatement, but it does seem like it took a long time to get this in place. Was it because of budget decisions that they were trying to make? Was it because of not having an OMB director? I mean, what do you think, Wendy? I mean, what are some of the, the reasons that might have caused this delay? Well, I think that a less than sufficient and fulsome transition period between the two administrations has a lot to do with it. That is a little bit of beating a dead horse there, but it's a fact. The transition was unlike any other transition, and I think that we are seeing a downstream effect of that. I think also in the Pentagon, again, there was a desire with the senior uh, political appointees and the president, more importantly, to do a scrub of the legacy systems. We've uh, read a lot about that. There are a number of particularly aircraft programs that, that the Pentagon has been trying to do away with for a number of years, and Congress has been blocking that. And there was also a review of the nuclear enterprise that was going on and whether or not to modernize all three legs of the nuclear triad. Those are all huge drivers of the budget and huge drivers of not just top line budget decisions, but it's a, it is not to use an overused phrase, but it's a trickle down effect that affects all manner of other budgetary decisions within the Pentagon, training, manning, all kinds of things that are affected by whether or not you're going to retire some legacy systems. So we are very hopeful at Taxpayers for Common Sense that that has been a real process, that it's not just a paper drill, that they really are saying, what's the strategy? Do we need these systems to meet that strategy? And 
to release a budget that reflects the strategy of the past administration would simply delay a series of decisions that have to be made. I mean, it's, I think it's pretty clear to not just listeners, but to, to everybody that the priorities of a Biden administration are dramatically different than the priorities of a Trump administration. Probably even a more dramatic shift than we've seen in a, in a long time between administrations and what they care about. And what we've always talked about about budgets is that they're more than just about numbers. They are about priorities and where you choose to invest and where you choose to disinvest. So I think that's a very apt point, Wendy. So looking at the process, you know, and, and, and you've worked on the Hill, isn't doing the spending bills, you know, we've heard that Congress is starting to do hearings and put together their packages. I mean, isn't doing that for fiscal year 22 um, the equivalent of getting the cart before the horse? I mean, how do they determine what level to spend? Right. Well, again, we've had such a bizarrely truncated process as far as the amount of time that having such a late budget request hit the Hill. The Congress, if you're going with regular order, the Congress has to have a budget resolution which sets the spending levels for each appropriations subcommittee. That's, you know, the old fashioned way of putting the horse in front of the cart. And that's a system that's been broken down the last few years. But not to get too deep into the budgetary weeds, Congress can simply set the appropriations subcommittee top lines through another process called deeming, which cuts out the budget resolution from the process. Uh, deeming is a topic for another time. But that is one way you could do it. I think it is pretty clear that we will have a budget resolution this year. And the reason I believe that is because to have budget reconciliation, another really nerdy budget issue that a lot of people are talking about these days, you have to have a budget resolution first before you can move to budget reconciliation. So before we get to reconciliation um, and what are some of the issues there, I wanted to bring Josh back in because it, it is going to Trust me, listeners, it's going to meet back up. But uh, so, Josh, it's not like spending hasn't already been a top priority in 2021. It most certainly has been. You have this $1.5 trillion discretionary spending proposal, but what are some of the things that have been going on, requests and things like that outside of the regular budget process already that we've seen this year? Well, Congress has clearly been busy this year in, in spending outside of the budget process. I mean, the first part of this Congress was really overwhelmed by debate on COVID-19 relief. So you had the American Rescue Plan, which took up a lot of time and energy. And then almost immediately that, after that was passed, we moved to President Biden's proposals for additional infrastructure. So the American Jobs Plan came out. And then we had some discussion about the American Families Plan. And now there's, I saw there was some, a potential immigration bill, which I believe is called the Coming to America, but in limited numbers under certain circumstances plans. Um, Maybe I made that one last one up. I'm just thinking that ahead, but that's what I would call it. Um, but in all seriousness, the budget is really important. This process of the president and his administration making a request and then having the, uh, the hearings uh, and all the disclosures from the agencies and the members of Congress coming together and looking at those requests is really important because the budget comes with a lot of information. There are reams and reams of data, justifications, how it affects 
um, future spending, how it compares to previous budgets. And so you really need to have all that information to, to make some good informed decisions about where we need to make investments now and into the future. And also one thing about this budget, any budget request is it's guaranteed that something resembling the budget is going to come out. So at the very least, that top line number of $1.5 trillion in the discretionary, that's going to be the baseline that they move forward with. And it is worth noting that, that just as you said, Josh, I mean, there's a ton of data that comes along with the budget request that you don't get for the American Jobs Plan and you don't get for the American Relief Plan or Coming to America starring Eddie Murphy. But now I want to kind of go back as promised. Wendy, you were about to say talk about budget reconciliation. I mean, what is one big reason why they're definitely going to do a budget resolution so they can get to reconciliation? Any budget reconciliation process through the Congress, you must first have a budget resolution. You don't have that, you can't do reconciliation because what are you reconciling to if you don't have a resolution? There are a lot of plans that Democrats in the Senate would like to enact, like to bring to fruition that they would, they're gonna have a hard time unless they can pass them with a bare majority of 51. So under the Senate rules, such as they are now, you need 60 votes to pass most anything. But one of the things that you can pass with a bare majority is budget reconciliation. So if you want to do any sweeping enactment of legislation that is the teensiest bit controversial, you need to tag it on to a reconciliation and do it through 51 votes. Exactly. And we've seen this reconciliation Trojan horse, if you would, to get across the Senate floor with 50, with the bare majority used by both parties. You know, we saw it to the modifications to Obamacare, Affordable Care Act. We saw it with the 2017 tax cut. We saw it just earlier this year with the American Rescue Plan. And so I, I do think, and it's particularly considering that the Senate parliamentarian that kind of governs the referee of what can be in a reconciliation, because it has to deal with spending or revenue or the debt ceiling, said that you can have multiple bites at the reconciliation apple. And so we may see a few times at this as they reconcile their budget resolution. So there you have it, listeners. The reintroduction of earmarks and a preview of the president's actual fiscal year 2022 budget proposal and what we see happening on the congressional floor going forward this summer and into the fall. Thanks for listening to Budget Watchdog AF. Please subscribe and share and enjoy the Memorial Day holiday. But remember the veterans that made the ultimate sacrifice for our country. Until next time, we'll remain laser focused on reading the bills, monitoring the earmarks, and highlighting wasteful programs that poorly spend our money and shift long-term liabilities to taxpayers. Mm -hmm.